The topic that we're looking at this morning is sexual purity. And I'll tell you in advance, we're going to look very directly at what Proverbs and several other passages in the Bible say about sexual impurity in the process. Now, I don't intend, I'll I'll tell you, I do not intend to be any more explicit than the Bible is about these matters. But the Bible is pretty direct. So I want to be sure the parents here are forewarned. Having said that, I believe that these are things that young people need to know, including children. In fact, I believe when the scriptures were read by the priests at the tabernacle worship and in, in the temple and later in the synagogues, the priests didn't look around to see if there were children there before they read these passages. These are things that we need to know. I want to start with uh, just a bit of context. And uh, and that is to, to sort of explain a couple of things about the context in ancient Israel versus the context today for the discussion of these matters. Marriages in ancient Israel were arranged by the families. And the girls were expected to be married at a very young age. In fact, not very long after they were capable of conceiving a child. As a result... Sex before marriage was far less an issue than it is in our culture simply because the opportunity was far less. The most common sexual sin in ancient Israel was adultery. So it makes sense that Solomon's words to his sons would focus on that sin when he was presenting instruction and warnings to them about the nature and the destructiveness of sexual sin. But it would be a misrepresentation of these passages to say that the only sexual sin that's being addressed is adultery. The Hebrew wording that is often translated adulterous in Proverbs literally means strange woman. Strange woman. And it's a very interesting phrase. Now while several of the passages we're going to look at make it clear that the seductive woman that's being talked about is an adulteress, that is, that she's married to another man, the words strange woman do not focus on the fact that she's married. They focus on the fact that she is forbidden by God to the man who is being addressed. The word strange in the phrase strange woman is the exact same Hebrew word that's used in Leviticus chapter 10 to describe the strange fire that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, brought into the newly consecrated tabernacle. And you know what happened to them when they did that? Another fire, the legitimate fire, that comes out from the presence of a holy God, consumed them and they were dead instantly. See, the reason that that fire that Nadab and Abihu brought into the tabernacle was strange is because it was not of God. It was of their own doing. It was their substitute for that which was consecrated and sacred in the eyes of God. And thus it was forbidden on pain of death. And that exact idea is what is the very heart of what makes the woman in these passages strange. She is not of God. She is a replacement by men for that which God has made sacred and given to the young man 
as a gift. Solomon is warning his son against falling to the seduction of a woman who is not the one given to him by God to be his wife and who is thus absolutely forbidden to him. The whole idea that the seductress in this passage is strange ties back to the simple fact that sex is God's idea, not man's. The one and only context in which God created sex to be observed, to be enjoyed, is marriage between one man and one woman. Genesis 2 makes that perfectly and simply clear. For this cause... A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. One flesh. The world can argue all at once about the legitimacy of its own designs for sex and marriage, but the world's insistence on the freedom of every man and woman to decide these things for himself or herself doesn't change God's reality one bit. And God's reality is the only reality. God created sex to be a one-flesh relationship between one man and one woman for life. Period. End of story. Now, there's a great image that's presented in Proverbs chapter 7, about what happens to a man who disregards the sanctity of God's design for sex and marriage. And I call it the shoot to the slaughterhouse. Proverbs seven twenty one through 23, and then also verse 27. It says, with her many persuasions, this forbidden woman entices the man. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. And then it says, suddenly, impulsively, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Then it says in verse 27, Her house is the way to Sheol descending to the chambers of death. I'm going to show you a couple of pictures. This is a cattle processing facility, otherwise known as a slaughterhouse. You see a mob of cattle that are outside of this apparatus, this chute. And then you see several cows who are uh, in the last moments of their life. And they're in this circular gathering pen that then leads to a single file chute. And that single file chute ushers them into that white building on the upper right. And I won't show you the pictures of what happens there because some of you couldn't handle it if I did. The second photo shows a little bit of a smaller view of that gathering pen. And you see the couple of things to note. First is the height of the wall. The cow's vision is very limited, and this is very intentional. And then you see the catwalk that the handlers, the men, stand on. And that's at also a specified height so that the men are very clearly visible to the cows, but nothing else is. Now, it's very interesting that neither of these men is holding a cattle prod. That's a thing of the past. With these gathering pens, the cows naturally 
gravitate toward that single file shoot. You don't have to do anything except kind of stand there and look that way. There are a few interesting things I learned when I studied this idea of the modern practice of the slaughterhouse. And I guarantee you, since cows haven't changed over the years very much, many of these same issues were uh, were considered in the handling of cattle back in the time that these passages were written. First, there is a critical element of deception in the way these shoots are designed. You'll notice that they're all curved. There are no square corners. That's intentional. An article from the U.S. Department of Agriculture explains that the curves prevent the animal from seeing the end point until they're almost there. If you look at this last little graphic, those are those brown things are cows, and they're moving from the big the big gathering pen into the single file chute. And if you look at the second line at the top of that, it says cattle think they are going back to where they came from. But guess what? They're not. And once they're in that chute, there is no coming back. They're being deceived in a calculated fashion. The other the second point along with deception, is that the chutes are designed to limit the cow's awareness of anything outside the chute. It's tunnel vision. It's, a, it's an imposed tunnel vision. They're given an artificial view of reality. All they see is their other cows, and once the first one heads down the chute, they follow. And then they see the handlers, and they're used to handlers. You're accustomed to being herded and moved around by people. So all that looks pretty innocuous to them, but it's not. The third thing is, as I mentioned, the cows don't have to be prodded to move into that final chute. They just gravitate toward the, that available opening, and they once, once the first one heads down it, they just follow without question. There is nothing intentional or well thought out about the cow's actions here. They're just passively following their own instincts. (laughs) The seduction of the temptress presented repeatedly in Proverbs has a lot in common with that slaughterhouse shoot. There is a powerful element of deception. Deception about where the path actually leads. Deception about the real consequences of the sin. There's also a calculated misrepresentation of the sin itself. It's made to look far better than it is. And we'll see that unless we are purposeful and vigilant about avoiding that path that leads to destruction, our tendency will be to follow our noses right into it. Now let's talk about how you get into the chute. What's the setup? What is it that makes a person particularly vulnerable to sexual temptation? First is that the one who is easily enticed into sexual temptation is the one who despises wise instruction. I picked several verses from Proverbs 5 from the passage that we read. Start with verses 1 through 3 and verse 7. My son... Solomon saying to his son, Give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. And then he starts to warn about what happens if you don't. He says, For the lips of an adulterous trip, honey, etc. 
Verse 7, he says again, Now then, my sons, plural, listen to me and do not depart from the word of my, words of my mouth. And then he goes back to warnings. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Verses 11 to 14, he's, he gives the antithesis of that. Here's what happens to the young man who disregards the wise counsel of his father. He says at the end of his days, he groans. He says, when your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I have hated instruction, how my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. By the way, you think in our culture that people care about what happens in the assembly and the congregation? Well, the culture doesn't. We're supposed to. Young men and young women, it's supposed to matter to you how you were perceived by other believers, by the other people of God. It's supposed to matter to you. Your reputation is supposed to matter. That's something that's, that's generally disregarded in our culture. But the focus here that I want you to see is on that, that the, the ruin comes about because the young man disregards wise counsel. Verse 21, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. We're going to come back to that idea later. And he watches all his paths, and then his, the, the man's own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He's trapped. Why is he trapped? He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he will go astray. See, it's not the absence of instruction. It's the disregard of instruction. It's foolishness that causes that young man to take what he has been handed graciously by his father and to say, I'm not going to do it that way. Proverbs 4.19 says, and I don't have a slide, but it says, The way of the wicked is like darkness. They don't know over what they stumble. It's not for the lack of light. It's because they prefer darkness over light. All right, so the starting point, the starting point to getting into the shoot is to despise wise instruction. There's a second thing about how this comes into play, and that is that it happens suddenly. You don't see it coming. Proverbs 7.21, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. And then it says, suddenly. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Before he knows it, he's in the chute. And there's no turning back. You fall into the trap suddenly, and like the cattle entering that chute to the slaughterhouse, your fate is sealed as soon as you take the first step. But unlike the quick and relatively painless death that those cattle will experience, the death that comes to you because you walked into the trap of sexual enticement is long and drawn out and exceedingly painful. It's interesting that Solomon jumps from the metaphor of the ox being led to slaughter over to the image of an arrow piercing the liver. The way an ox was killed at slaughter was far more humane than an arrow piercing the liver. When an arrow comes through your liver, you don't die instantly. You die slowly 
and you die in excruciating pain. Solomon's making a point. The destruction you face by falling into sexual sin is grievously hurtful and destructive. Far worse than you would tend to think it would be. It looks so good. Proverbs 7, verses 15 to 21. Listen to the words of the seductress. She says, Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and have found you. In that verse, she's declaring just how committed she is to this thing. She's earnest. She's putting herself into it. She's appealing to the ego of the young man. She's saying, you're so important to me. But the reality is that she is drawing him into destruction. In verses 16 and 17, the woman goes to great lengths to make the whole situation seem wonderfully pleasant. It says, I have spread my couch with coverings with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. These are precious, valuable things. Uh, precious linens, precious fragrances and perfumes. So she makes it look <laughs> very pleasant. And it appeals to all your senses. And then in verses 18 to 21... She paints a picture of the sin itself, which is a picture of overwhelming pleasure. She says, Come, let us drink of our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. (laughs) Sounds really good, doesn't it? Verse 19, she dismisses the consequence. She lies about the risk. This is a huge factor in the deceptiveness of sin. She says... For the man is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. In other words, we're not going to get caught, so there's no harm to this. Isn't that the way our culture thinks? I can't tell you guys how many times I've heard young Christians justify a behavior because they don't expect to get caught. Do you think that's how it really works? Can you avoid being caught? by the God who sees everything. It looks so good and it turns out so very bad. Proverbs 7, verses 21, to, and if David Dean were here, he'd make me say badly. Proverbs seven twenty-one to 23 and verse 27. The one verse we've already seen. It ends up with slaughter. It ends up by costing that man his life. It says her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Now some of you may be saying, I know that I can can fall to sexual temptation and not die. (laughs) Do the words, we shall not surely die, sound familiar? You're either on a path that leads to death or you're on a path that leads to life. Even if you're a believer, you're on one of those two paths with every decision that you make. It is only by the grace of God that we whom He has redeemed are handed a boundary from God on how far we can go down that path of death. And He may pluck us out of this life if necessary. He may make someone very sick. There's biblical precedent for that. But beloved, if you take lightly 
the gracious protection and provision of God, you're slapping God in the face. Paul says in Romans 6, What shall we say? Shall we sin all the more that grace may abound? And he says, May it never be. And he says, You have been buried with Christ in the likeness of His death, and you have been raised with Him in the likeness of His resurrection to newness of life. Therefore, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. That's the response to the grace of God to which we are called. Each step that draws you closer to sexual sin is like the next step of an ox being led through the chute to the slaughterhouse. But here's the big difference between you and that ox. He's too dumb to know what's going on. You couldn't explain it to him even if you wanted to. But you have been forewarned. Clearly, repeatedly, and emphatically by God through His Word. And if you choose to disregard that clear and repeated and emphatic exhortation and warning, you will suffer the consequences. See, it's not ignorance that causes you to fall into the trap of sexual sin. It's pride. Professing to be wise, men became fools. It's when you decide that you know more about what's good than God does that you fall. As we saw a few weeks ago, one of the marks of foolishness is that the fool thinks he can predict and control the consequences of his foolish, sinful actions. But the reality is that his confidence in himself is completely unfounded because he can do neither. He cannot predict and he cannot control. And guys, once you're in that chute... The consequences are inevitable. Proverbs 6, verses 27 to 29 says, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? He says, So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. There is no avoiding the destructive consequences. And once you're in the chute, it takes a miracle to get you out. Fortunately for all of us, God does miracles. But again, to take lightly the kindness of our God is the height of foolishness. The grace of God is not a license to sin. It is a mandate to submit the members of our very bodies as instruments and slaves to God and to righteousness. Romans 6. Now let's talk about the entry points, about some ways specifically in our cultural context that we are pulled into that entrance to the chute. I'm sure you've noticed that our culture is a mess when it comes to sexuality. You don't have to look very long. The enticements to sexual sin are all around us. For men who are wired to key on visual stimuli, it's like waking up every day in enemy headquarters. There are visual cues that require at least a little bit of involvement to be exposed to, like movies, TV shows, video games, web pop-ups, embedded links and videos on web pages, and of course, 
commercials. And then there are stimuli that you have to actually work to avoid, like billboards, magazine covers, and the multitude of women who seem either to have no concept about how men are wired or else they're deliberately trying to create a temptation. Clearly, the culture makes every bit as concerted an effort to draw the attention of women towards sexual sin as it does men. Try to find a a modern romantic book or movie or TV show that doesn't involve sex outside of marriage. You have a hard time finding even one. The way our culture presents it, you can't have love without having sex, at least not beyond the first or second date. But all of these cues or entry points to the slaughterhouse shoot are really just symptoms of a more foundational failure. I want to consider for a moment the grievous error that underlies the whole approach that the culture takes towards sexuality and marriage. And that failure is a cultural disdain for the sanctity of marriage and sex. A disdain, an actual hatred of God's design for marriage and sexuality. Our culture has become more and more resolved to the idea that the covenant of marriage is overrated. And it's a self-perpetuating cycle. Because because the marriage covenant is taken so lightly, marriages fail at a ridiculous rate. And because so many marriages fail, more and more people see little value to marriage at all. Those who do marry often resign themselves at the outset of marriage to the likelihood that it's going to be a fairly short-term proposition, which means it's really not a marriage covenant at all, as God defines it. It's just a marriage experiment. And those men and women that that our culture idolizes most are the ones who have the very lowest opinion of marriage. And of course, at the root of the culture's disdain for the sanctity of marriage is that same essential error that's at the root of all sin. The catastrophic notion that we understand better than God does what's good. But the Bible presents marriage and sexual intimacy within marriage as sacred in the eyes of God. Hebrews 13.4 says not to defile the marriage bed. It's sacred to God. Marriage is presented as a marvelous gift of God to mankind. When God created Adam, he said it was not good for the man to be alone. See, the Trinitarian God, who from eternity past knew what perfect love and unity and fellowship were like, graciously created the woman so that the man could also know love and unity, and fellowship with someone who was like himself while he was here during his sojourn this side of heaven. God gave this gift of oneness to Adam and Eve so that they would be better together than they could ever be separately. And he declares marriage to be his beautiful earthly picture to us of of the relationship of love and trust and respect that exists between Christ and His church. If you have a low opinion of marriage, you have a low opinion of the one who created marriage. 
Related to the culture's low opinion of marriage is another problem in our culture that acts as an entry point to the shoot, and that is the legitimization of premarital sex. One of the most dramatic changes in our culture during my 57 years is the demonization of sexual purity before marriage. Virginity is now treated as an illness to be cured as soon as possible. Does the Bible even talk about premarital sex? I've heard a number of young professing believers say that it doesn't. But guys, to say that the Bible does not talk about premarital sex because it doesn't use the words premarital sex is like saying the Bible doesn't talk about the Trinity because it doesn't use the word Trinity. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let the marriage bed be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. And then it says, For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That's two different categories of sexual sin. Fornicators and adulterers, and they're at the same level. So what is a fornicator? Stay with me for a moment here. In some cases, the word fornication, porneo, refers to sexual immorality in fairly general terms. But in other passages, it has a more precise meaning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is talking about sexual immorality. And look at verse 9. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. If you've got three categories that are at the same level, fornicators, adulterers, and homosexuals, what is a fornicator? Well, Paul explains how he's using this word in this context in the next few verses, because in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, he says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, and the word there is porneo, it is fornication, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And then a few verses later, he says, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I, which is unmarried, But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And many translations say to burn with passion or with desire. So here's the question. What potential sin of immorality is no longer an issue once somebody marries? Well, it's certainly not adultery, because adultery implies that someone in the mix is married. It's premarital sex. It's clear, guys. Exodus, Old Testament, Exodus chapter 22. I don't have that one up, but it says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. See, he's entered into a one-flesh relationship with her, so in the eyes of God, that means he's married to her. You don't get to do that multiple times. It's one man and one woman, one flesh for life. That's God's design. So, I'll ask again, does the Bible have anything to say about premarital sex? You bet it does. 
and doesn't treat premarital sex as okay with God, (laughs) you bet it doesn't. That's why the writer of Hebrews speaks of both adultery and fornication as violating the sanctity, the sacredness of the marriage bed. In what way does sex before marriage violate the sanctity of the marriage bed? It's actually pretty simple. See, unless you can guarantee that the person you're having sex with before marriage is the same one that you're going to end up marrying, then you are insinuating yourself into that person's one flesh relationship with his or her spouse. You are violating that which is sacred that God has intended for that person. And of course, you're violating the one flesh relationship between you and your spouse, should you ever marry. See, it's like adultery in advance in the eyes of God. I still vividly remember a discussion among the seniors at my high school one day about sex before marriage, and yes, we did talk about such things even in the 70s. One girl in that discussion was very strongly of the opinion that having sex before marriage would make for a better sexual experience once you got married, even if you ended up marrying somebody else. Sort of a practice makes perfect approach. She felt like she was doing a favor for the man that she would eventually marry by having sex with other guys now. Now back then, even though all us guys thought about sex several thousand times a day, just like teenage boys do now, Many of us who were in that discussion found it laughable that she would make such a statement. Today, the boys would probably give her a standing ovation and make a run for the axe body spray in their lockers. Let me share a little secret with you. Sex before marriage does not prepare you for sex in marriage. It does the exact opposite. It sabotages the sexual relationship within marriage. The established fact is that sex before marriage virtually guarantees that it will be harder for you and your spouse to have a healthy and successful marriage, and that includes a healthy and successful sexual relationship. If you do a Google search on the words, the correlation between premarital sex and divorce, you'll get 86,000 hits. Focus on the Family has fairly extensive bibliography of journal articles documenting research on this point, and it'll be footnoted in my manuscript, including research done at secular, non-Christian universities. The statistics on this are undeniable. Sex before marriage has a direct negative correlation to success in marriage. And by the way, the research that The research that men have done is helpful, but not determinative. What's determinative is the truth of God's Word. That's the only source we actually need to tell us how things work. Now, this doesn't mean that a successful, joyful, and enduring marriage is out of reach for you if you've been sexually active while you were single. Our God is a God of renewal and restoration, and His grace is greater than our sin. But it does mean that sex before marriage creates a very significant hurdle for your marriage and for the other person's marriage with whom you've engaged in this behavior. 
And the more sexual partners you have before marriage, in short, the more practice you get, the more likely it is that when you marry, your marriage will be an epic failure. And by the way, also, the research shows that if you add cohabitation to the mix, living together, it compounds the likelihood that your marriage will crash and burn. The problem with going into a sexual relationship without the benefit of marriage is that the absence of a lifelong commitment to that other person as the context for sex dooms the relationship to failure most of the time. So treating sex or cohabitation as preparation for marriage is foolishness at an extraordinary level. Now let me ask some of you young folks a simple question. Would you choose in advance to do something that you knew would make it far less likely that you'd have a successful marriage? And if you're dating someone and you say that you love them, would you choose in advance to do something with them that would make, make it far less likely that their marriage would be successful? Is that love? No, that's self-indulgence on both sides. It's not love. Love cares about moving another person toward that which is godly and sacred and beautiful and perfect and holy. And if you don't care about moving that other person toward Christ, you don't love them. You love yourself. I know I'm being more preachy than expositional on this. By the way, I decided this morning that this has to be two messages, not one. Yeah, Bob's done that in the shower before on Sunday morning. I'm going to talk about another symptom that follows from the disdain that the culture has for the sanctity of marriage, and that is pornography. It's another entry point to the slaughterhouse shoot, and it's a big one. The legitimization of pornography. Many men these days, both single and married, are saying to themselves, in effect, pornography doesn't hurt anyone, so it's not wrong. Is that accurate based on what the Bible tells us? It's not. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. And then he explained that the standard that the Jewish leaders had for what constitutes that sin? That the, their standard was way down here and God's standard was way up there where His character is. He said, I say to you that everyone who looks upon a woman to lust after has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Many men seem to hold to some vague kind of rationalization that says, well, I'm not actually looking at the woman I can't possibly be hurting her because I'll never even see her in person. I'm just looking at a photo or a video of the woman. Guys, do you think God's impressed with that rationalization? You think your wife would be impressed with that argument? God declares clearly and repeatedly in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 that the nakedness of a woman belongs to her husband and must not be uncovered by anyone except her husband. And that is more than just a euphemism for having sex. There are a couple of verses in Leviticus 20 that make it very clear that the prohibition applies 
to viewing the nakedness of someone who's not your spouse. And it goes both ways. A man viewing the nakedness of a woman or a woman viewing the nakedness of a man. Because that nakedness belongs to that person's spouse by God's design and it belongs to no one else. So if you look at it, it's a sin. It's a violation of God's design for marriage and sex. And there is no rationalization that makes that go away. I've heard Christians say often that pornography leads to sexual sin. No. Pornography is sexual sin. It is the sin of adultery. If you're married, it is an act of grievous infidelity toward your spouse. It is nothing less than a convenient form of adultery that's easy for you to hide from your spouse. Pornography kills marriages. If you do any counseling with believers, you know that this is epidemic in the church of Jesus Christ. And, it, and the level of destruction in the lives of the people who are involved in it is incalculable. If you're married and you're indulging in pornography, do not be deceived. You're in the chute. And so is your marriage. If you're not married, pornography is an act of infidelity toward the person you will eventually marry. By the way, it's also a grievous sin against the person you're looking at, even if she is very willing to let you look. But whether you're married or unmarried, there's an even more important relationship that this affects because that relationship is the one that matters most. It is first and foremost an act of infidelity toward the God who created both sex and marriage. That gets me to my last point. What's the big deal about sexual sin? In 1 Corinthians 6, and I'm sorry I'm going a little late, but I'll try to try to be brief in concluding. Paul is talking about food. All things are lawful, but the stomach is for food. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them, so what you eat is not all that important. But then he says, yet the body is not for immorality, but for God. And the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, Jesus Christ, but He will also raise us up through His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? This this earthly tent that you're walking around in is destined to stand in the presence of God perfected. It belongs to Him. It doesn't belong to you. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? For he says the two will become one flesh. And of course, that's Genesis 2 again. And then he says, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one with him. One spirit with him. And then he says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. When a young person says, it's my life and I'll do what I want, he is calling God a liar. It is not your life. It's his. 
It's not your body. It's His. He bought and paid for it so that you could stand forever in that body, perfected for all eternity. This passage tells us with great urgency and clarity that we don't belong to ourselves. There is only one human being with whom you can join yourself in sexual intimacy that will not defile the one who bought you and who indwells you, and that is your spouse. Proverbs 5, verses 20 and 21, Solomon says, For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress? And that's the strange woman, the forbidden woman. Why should you embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. You cannot hide from God. Psalm 51 records King David's words of contrition and repentance after the prophet Nathan convicted him of the sins of adultery and murder. And David says to God, no slide here, but he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. If you're, if you're leading a double life, if you're in, indulging the deeds of darkness and then putting on a pious mask to your wife or to your friends or to your brothers and sisters in Christ, do not be deceived. The ones you're able to hide your sin from are just sinners themselves, saved only by the grace of God. The relationship to which you are doing the most grievous damage is your relationship with the one who redeemed you. And the one whose temple you are defiling sees everything you do, every moment, in every place. He jealously desires the spirit that he has made to dwell within you. If you belong to him, he will not turn a blind eye to your sin. Hebrews 12 says, those whom he loves, disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. That's a good thing, not a bad thing, but it is not to be taken lightly. Brothers, we cannot play around with this. It's like filling a volleyball with nitroglycerin and then thinking you can have a good game with it. We must flee from this sin, from every residue, every instance of sexual sin and sexual temptation with every fiber of our being. Foolish justifications or passive denials of the gravity of the sin only serve to move us further down a path that leads only to destruction and death. I'm going to conclude with a passage from James chapter 4. James tells us what we must do if we have been flirting with the world's way of thinking. I don't have a slide. You might want to look at this one, James 4. Starting at verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not, is not the source your pleasures that wage war within your members? You lust and do not have, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And then look at this. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God and whoever wants to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God? 
or do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell within us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's what we must do, guys and ladies. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to, to mourning and your joy into gloom until you deal with this. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. That is what we must do. Let us be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Loving Father, This is far too important for us to to hear once and then disregard. Dear Father, we pray that your Spirit would burn this into our hearts. That you have called us as vessels of holiness. You have called us as bearers of Christ. As the very temples of the Holy Spirit. Father, together as a body, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And everything that any one among us does impacts all of the others. We pray that you would, you would root out and destroy every residue of unfaithfulness in our hearts toward you and toward our wives and our husbands and toward our brothers and sisters in Christ whom we are called to protect in purity. Father, We pray with with all earnestness that you would not let us set this aside. We ask these things, dear Father, for the sake of the one who bought and paid for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.